Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Through the technology embedded in almost every major tech platform and every web-enabled device, algorithms and the artificial intelligence that underlies them make a staggering number of everyday decisions for us. What products we buy, to where we decide to eat, to how we consume our news, to whom we date, and how we find a job. We've even delegated life and death decisions to algorithms, decisions once made by doctors, pilots, and judges. There's a new book out which examines this important factor in our lives. It's called A Human's Guide to Machine Intelligence, How Algorithms Are Shaping Our Lives and How We Can Stay in Control. The author is Kartik Hosaniger. He is the John C. Howard Professor of Technology and Digital Business and a professor of marketing at the Wharton School of University of Pennsylvania. Um, he is co-founder of uh, four different ventures. He's recognized in 2011 by Poets and Quants as one of the top 40 business professors under 40. His writings appeared in Wired, Forbes, Harvard Business Review. Uh, Kartik Hosaniger, uh, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Tom. So this is, uh, I think we can all agree, this is uh, a big factor in our lives, uh, getting more of a factor all the time. You begin the book with an interesting discussion of a couple of chatbots who took very different paths. I wonder if you could compare and contrast uh, Shawice with Tay. And uh, people may not yeah, be absolutely. familiar with these, but uh, but but the very <laughs> very interesting paths these two chatbots took. Yeah. So I, as you mentioned, started the book talking about Shawice and, and Tay. Uh, Shawice, uh, also known as Xiaobing in China. Uh, it was a chatbot created by Microsoft Research. Uh, this chatbot was created in the persona of a teenage girl uh, to engage in uh, fun and playful conversations and was primarily uh, targeted at young adults in China. And Xiaowise uh, was a huge hit in China. So uh, nearly 40 million people uh, follow Xiaowise and uh, many of them engage in uh, daily conversations with Shawais. And uh, in fact, such is the love and affection that um, Shawais has inspired that according to uh, various news reports, nearly a quarter of these followers of Shawais have said, I love you to Shawais. Mm -hmm. uh, now, motivated by the success of Shawais in China, Microsoft wondered whether they could launch a similar chatbot uh, in the U.S. So they created a chatbot uh, here as well. Uh, again, in the persona of a teenage girl, once again, a chatbot that could engage in fun and playful conversations. And they launched that chatbot uh, on Twitter. And that chatbot uh, was quite infamous. Uh, that chatbot uh, was called uh, Microsoft Tay. And it became infamous because Microsoft Tay uh, turned sexist, racist, fascist, uh, and really started, uh, you know, communicating and messaging in a very offensive way with a lot of people. And uh, she or it said uh, outrageous things ranging from uh, Hitler was right to uh, feminists must burn in hell and many other things. Um, and Microsoft ended up having to shut down that chatbot within 24 hours of launching it. And in fact, MIT's technology review uh, rated... Uh, Microsoft Tay as the worst technology of uh, 2016. And it's really interesting to see how two similar technologies uh, or two similar chatbots created by the exact same company using similar approaches had such different outcomes, inspiring love and affection in one country and having 40 million followers and uh, becoming offensive and being shut down within 24 hours in another. And so that was uh, that is in many ways the starting point uh, for my book, uh, and essentially uh, begs this broader question of, you know, uh, what does this say about our use of AI uh, to make important decisions uh, in our daily lives, in our professional lives, um, and and also the excitement around AI and and how technology companies are using AI in a big way. This is really affecting our lives. By the way, the um, Siri and Alexa are chatbots, right? That's right. Uh, Siri and Alexa are perfect examples of uh, chatbots, not unlike what was created by uh, Microsoft uh, uh, as Microsoft Day, but uh, different in the sense that they're trained on slightly different data sets, 
and uh, probably have gone through more rigorous testing. But nonetheless, we keep hearing about uh, Alexa and Siri also, you know, occasionally saying uh, weird stuff. So a uh, c- couple of definitions, I think. You talk about this in the book. We, we kind of have a uh, wrong idea, maybe definition of algorithm. What's, uh, how do you define algorithm? Yeah, I mean, you hear the term algorithm all the time, and I think most people uh, correctly infer that algorithm is something to do with uh, the software uh, that are uh, making choices for us. Um, and, you know, to put it quite simply, an algorithm uh, is just um, just a series of steps that a computer program follows in order to get a task done. And the analogy I provide is that uh, you know, suppose you and I were making an omelet. You know, we each follow a series of steps. The steps you follow might be different from mine. And, of course, we just call it an uh, omelet recipe and say, you know, uh, you know, you have an omelet recipe and I have an omelet recipe. But really that recipe is a series of steps we follow uh, to cook. And quite similarly, uh, the series of steps a computer program follows is its algorithm you could call it a recipe, but a computer science, a scientist would call it an algorithm. And if you look at something like uh, Microsoft Day or you look at Siri or Alexa, they follow certain steps in order to understand what we say to them and in order to respond as well. And that is their algorithm. And so I think uh, algorithms we've been used to are uh, algorithms which help us make decisions. Yes. Uh, certainly the algorithms uh, we're used to in our everyday lives are algorithms that help us make decisions. For example, when you go to Amazon and you're looking at a product, uh, there's a recommendation that says people who viewed this product also viewed these other products, or people who bought this also bought these other products. So that's an algorithm that's a recommendation algorithm that's trying to recommend uh, related products of interest to us. If you go to Netflix again, Netflix uh, shows a bunch of titles that might be of interest to us. That's Netflix's recommendation algorithm. Uh, for uh, people who use uh, Tinder or Match.com uh, for dating, there's an algorithm that recommends people they should date. Um, and of course, an algorithm can be beyond something that is recommending uh, things to us. It could be autonomous. It could be making decisions on its own. Uh, Think of a driverless car, um, and in a driverless car, you specify where you're trying to go, and the algorithm makes a series of decisions. It's not recommending the choices, but it makes the decision for us. And again, it follows an algorithm to figure out what route to take, what speed to go at, when to change lanes, when not to change lanes, things like that. And that, so helping us make a decision versus making decisions for us, is that a, a difference in kind or a difference in um, extent, I wonder? Is that... Yeah, I think both. Um, I think the implications uh, are, are quite significant, and in some ways it depends on what context we're talking about. Um, but certainly, you know, if we look at algorithms that make recommendations uh, or help us make choices. You know, I initially talked about, you know, recommending products to us. That seems like uh, a relatively innocuous example. Now we can go beyond that and we can talk about algorithms that recommend media we should consume. You know, for example, on Google News, the stories that are shown to us are personalized. Or if you look at YouTube, uh, you start watching a YouTube video and it recommends uh, other news uh, video content for us to watch, including news stories. Um, you know, look at Facebook, the news feed algorithm dis- decides which of thousands of posts it shows to us, and the stakes go up. If you further move on to things like, uh, you know, algorithms used in courtrooms in the U.S., uh, algorithms are used to predict the likelihood a defendant will reoffend, and that is used by judges and parole officers to make sentencing decisions. There are algorithms that are trying to diagnose diseases and, uh, again, recommend to doctors on what the actual problem is and what's the treatment they should follow. And especially as we go towards precision medicine, uh, which is essentially the idea that the treatment is personalized to the DNA profile of an individual, we're talking about the DNA data being so complex that 
a human being, you know, is going to find it hard to parse through that data, analyze that data, and make decisions rapidly. And so uh, increasingly we are going to let the algorithm uh, run the show if we are going to um, use these algorithms. And, of course, certainly as we go continue to go down that path, and go to completely autonomous algorithms, uh, then we are completely ceding control to that algorithm. Uh, but as we move down that chain that I just walked you through, I think there are many implications. Even at the level of an algorithm recommending products to us, we have to ask, how does it change the kinds of things we would uh, buy? How does it change the kinds of uh, content we would uh, read and consume? Does it change our viewpoints? Does it uh, open us up to new ideas? Does it uh, really put us down these filter bubbles or echo chambers? And of course, if we move all the way down to, uh, you know, life and death decisions made in a courtroom or, or by a doctor or when we're driving, uh, then the stakes become really very significant uh, in terms of what we are actually giving away to these algorithms. So, uh, so a lot to talk about there. Um, I want to start with... Um, Maybe the least consequential, but but it, even those can be very consequential. Um, you know, Amazon, you might like this, that kind of thing, yeah. um, which, which constrains you in a way. Uh, I, I, you know, if, if I have that, it's very helpful, but I lose the sensation of walking down a library aisle and and just happening on uh, something I, I might like it's uh, it, it's closing me in maybe in positive ways but but maybe I lose out on some things yeah it's really interesting uh, you you kind of provide that example of walking down the library and, and just uh, happening in on some book um, and I think if you if you look at the Amazon algorithm or the Netflix algorithm, uh, there is no doubt that these systems do add a lot of value. Imagine trying to spend uh, hours trying to figure out uh, which TV to buy or, you know, which book to buy on a given subject, uh, and you have to, you know, really evaluate maybe 10, 12 options and figure out which books are better rated, you know, what is the actual focus of each book and so on. And when an algorithm tells us, hey, people who viewed this, also viewed these other products. It allows us to focus in on the more relevant uh, products, say electronics to buy, or it says people who viewed this eventually bought that. I think that really, again, helps us. It saves us time, and especially on tasks uh, that may not excite us but needs to get done. And so if I can figure out what electronics to buy sooner and get time to play with my kids or uh, go hiking or whatever, you know, we all value that. So there's no doubt these systems create a lot of value. But the flip side is to ask how did it change the choices I, I made and uh, in particular, uh, did it restrict uh, the sets of options I looked at and did, it, uh, did I end up overlooking some interesting options? And you talked about walking down the library aisle and happening in or discovering a, a new book that you might not have thought of when you walked into the library. And I think in many ways, the goal of these recommendation algorithms is to automate that process of walking down the aisle and running into an interesting book. But it's not so simple to really uh, create a mathematical formula for serendipity. Uh, and the closest you can come to is the kinds of things that Amazon does. People who viewed this also viewed this. People who bought this also bought that. Uh, and so on. And, uh, you know, I've uh, over time studied these algorithms, looked at their impact on choice and so on. And, and I have two observations on that. The first, uh, which of course is uh, in some ways obvious, but not many people appreciate the extent to which this happens, is that they have a very significant impact on our choices. So at Amazon, for example, a third of the choices people make at Amazon originate from algorithmic recommendations. Uh, now, if you go to a setting like media, that goes up even more. At Netflix, 80% uh, of viewing hours on Netflix are attributed to automated recommendations. And at YouTube, 70% of the viewing time on YouTube is attributed to automated recommendations. And so there's a lot of choice they're driving. But they also change the kinds of choices we make. Uh, one belief that used to be there for quite some time 
was that all of these algorithms, they expose us to what is known as the long tail, meaning that uh, in their absence, we end up buying the blockbuster products. In their absence, we buy the, let's say, as far as a book is concerned, the New York Times bestseller, or as far as music is concerned, something that is in the billboard charts, or, or movies, again, you know, a blockbuster hit. But the belief was that these algorithms consistently and uniformly expose us to those niche titles that are closer to our tastes and preferences, but we might not otherwise discover. But actually, we did some studies over on this for a long period of time, and what we found was that the design of these systems matter. And sometimes they help us in discovery, and sometimes they actually hurt the discovery. So a very common design uh, that is used by many companies uh, is the Amazons, people who bought this also bought that, or people who viewed this also viewed that. And th these designs tend to have a popularity bias. So the more you uh, something is bought or viewed by others, the more likely it is to be recommended. And so it reinforces the popularity of already popular titles. And so it's unlikely to expose us to what you were talking about, walk down the library aisle and just run into a book you've never heard of, none of your friends know about, but you come across it and it seems interesting. And so it wouldn't do that. Um, and, and some of our research in my group, uh, we explored that and we showed that these designs have these uh, problems. And we also found that there's another design that doesn't have this problem. And that design is what is used, for example, by uh, Pandora, which is a, a music online radio station. And Pandora doesn't recommend songs based on people who listen to this also listen to these. Instead, Pandora... Their algorithm was based on having a musicologist listen to songs and rate songs along, uh, you know, several dozen dimensions, like how rhythmic is the song, how much instrumentation is there in this song, and so on. And once you say you like a song, Pandora finds other songs that are similar. So if you like a certain song and it's highly rhythmic and highly orchestrated, you'll find other songs that are similar. And so popularity is not a part of that. And so it doesn't have the popularity bias, but on the other hand, that design is very complex to build because they needed musicologists to listen to songs and rate them. And so for many years, they were not that popular. Uh, but I think over time, because of our research and other uh, researchers showing that the popular design has this bias, many systems like Spotify and many other companies, uh, including Amazon and Netflix, have modified their designs to combine the best of both. And they're helping address the popularity bias. But bottom line, you know, these examples that I walked you to, through show that, you know, the engineers are making various design choices. And they're thinking about something like the accuracy of the design. But, uh, but these design choices have many downstream uh, impacts. And by downstream impacts, I mean uh, side effects uh, on choices we make, like, uh, you know, are they, are they expanding us to new areas or are they moving us down an echo chamber where we're only consuming more and more of what we already like? So all those are important implications that we need to think about. We're talking with uh, Kartik Hosaniger. He is a, a professor at the Wharton School and out with an interesting book, A Human's Guide to Machine Intelligence. Subtitle is How Algorithms Are Shaping Our Lives and How We Can Stay in Control. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, uh, Professor, I'd like to have you tell me briefly about uh, the, uh, a student you talked about in the first chapter, uh, Tai, how you pronounce his name? Yeah, time. Um, yes. And he does, uh, page 25, he's analyzed the root cause of his day, and it's, it's, gone, back to, it's gone back to algorithms in each, in each case. And the, the chapter has a provocative title, Free Will in an Algorithm, Algorithmic World. Let's talk about that uh, when we come back. This is Science by the Slice. USU geochemist Dennis Newell and students are studying the Peruvian Gap, an area of Peru that lacks volcanic activity. Newell says a likely cause is side effects of flat slab subduction of the Nazca Plate beneath South America that shut off access to the hot mantle far below the Earth's surface. The region's relatively young Andes Mountains provide a snapshot of how the much older American West's Rocky Mountains developed. 
This segment of Science by the Slice is brought to you by the USU College of Science, offering degree programs in mathematics and varied scientific disciplines. Details at usu.edu science. Utah Public Radio would like to thank our partners, Beezer Lock and Key, for sponsoring programming on Utah Public Radio. Find out how you can become a sponsor by emailing debbie.andrew at usu.edu. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We're talking about a phenomenon, algorithms and artificial intelligence, which are affecting our lives in ways sometimes we don't even recognize. And in some ways beyond our control, um, Kartik Hosaniger, a Wharton School professor, is out with a new book, A Human's Guide to Machine Intelligence, How Algorithms Are Shaping Our Lives and How We Can Stay uh, in Control. So, Professor Hosaniger, um, I wonder if you'd tell me about uh, Ty. I don't know if he's one of your students. He's there at the University of uh, Pennsylvania. And uh, he he did an exercise, on it looks like on a whiteboard, where he uh, analyzed the root causes of his day, and that the causes went back to algorithms. Yes, so Ty uh, was a student of mine, and uh, he was in my uh, was a student in my uh, course called Enabling Technologies, where uh, I discuss various technologies that uh, are fundamental to our personal and professional lives. Uh, we talk about recommendation systems, we talk about uh, algorithms, chatbots, and many other. Uh, related topics. And one day he walked up to me and he said, hey, there's this really interesting uh, thing I wanted to show you. Uh, there are two uh, main things that I'm doing today. And I was just reflecting on uh, our lecture on recommendation algorithms. And I found uh, that the two things that are very uh, fundamental to my day today are both driven by algorithms. And so I asked him to uh, walk me through it. And he said what was going on was that he had an interview uh, with the company, uh, and uh, that was a, a job that he really wanted, and that um, you know th- that was one really important thing going on in his day. And the second was that uh, he and his uh, girlfriend uh, were planning to move in together after graduating, and they were having having an argument uh, about uh, various things. And his conclusion was that that interview and that argument were both related to algorithms. And so I asked him, well, I, you know, how's that possible? And I, I don't understand what you mean. And so he said that, uh, you know, the way uh, the job interview came up was that uh, he was on LinkedIn and LinkedIn, um, showed him a message and asked him to congratulate a friend of his for our one-year anniversary um, at this company. And so he uh, followed through on that recommendation, and he messaged her and, and congratulated her. Uh, and uh, she then said, hey, aren't you graduating? You know, our team is looking, and you should apply here. And then uh, he did apply. But what's more interesting also, furthermore, is that uh, this uh, person, Samantha, who he uh, contacted because of a LinkedIn recommendation, was somebody he met uh, through an algorithm again, because uh, he was using Tinder, uh, which is a dating app. And when he was using Tinder, Tinder actually suggested that he would be compatible with Samantha, and then he ended up dating her. But it turns out uh, Tinder was wrong, uh, Samantha, and he concluded that uh, you know, they, they weren't uh, uh, compatible, and, and they didn't end up continuing to date, but they stayed in touch, and, uh, and, and essentially he was thinking of how Tinder's, <clears throat> excuse me, Tinder's algorithm introduced him to Samantha. That's how he got to know her, and then LinkedIn's algorithm asked him to reconnect with Samantha, which then led to his uh, job interview. Uh, similarly, when he talked about, uh, you know, the argument with his, Girlfriend, it turns out that our argument with his girlfriend was related to, uh, you know, what would happen uh, if they decided to, if one of them decided to move out of the apartment, uh, then who would get to retain the apartment and who would have to leave? And so they were discussing and negotiating that apparently. And uh, his girlfriend um, uh, found that discussion 
problematic and they didn't appreciate that, you know, even before they moved in, they were having a negotiation on who gets to keep the apartment if they uh, don't get along and one of them needs to move out. And then he thought about, you know, why he was having that discussion, and it turns out uh, that uh, it was, again, because, uh, you know, that uh, was that article was forwarded to him by his mom, and his mom in turn, in turn came up with that or, or uh, ran into that article because of a, a recommendation that popped up on one of these websites, and that's how she discovered that uh, article. And so uh, he was talking again about how these recommendations were actually pretty fundamental to lots of things he were he was choosing, including he said he used to set a smart alarm, uh, uh, essentially. Uh, you know, a system that would monitor his sleep patterns and figure out what's the right time for him to wake up. Uh, and then he was talking about how Spotify, again, was uh, figuring out what music he should listen to and so on. And, uh, you know, his observation was that, you know, he thought he had control over the choices he made, but it turns out a lot of these choices were uh, in many ways predetermined by an algorithm. So the chapter is titled uh, Free Will and, and Algorithms. It occurs to me, it probably has to you as well, that, uh, you know, some of these things probably would have happened anyway. Moms are always going to encourage their sons to, you know, to think about marriage and, and, uh, and give her grandkids. That, you know, you, you, we're going to date, et cetera, et cetera. So how do you parse out uh, how algorithms are affecting our lives? Well, I think the way one parses it out is to, um, you know, again, as a scientist, the way I would approach it is to look at, you know, some users who are exposed to algorithms and some users who are not exposed to algorithms, and then we compare the choices they make. Um, And that's what we would usually do, and I've run many of those studies. So, for example, with uh, retail websites, you know, when they're trying to figure out what is the impact of the algorithm, we would typically have a control group that is not seeing the recommendations, and we would compare uh, the choices they make against a treated group that does get recommendations. And in my studies uh, with partners, I've kind of seen uh, a couple things. First, uh, that they have an impact on the sheer number of purchases we make. Uh, For example, with one retail partner, a research collaborator, we found that uh, these recommendation algorithms drove a 25% increase in the number of uh, products people consume. And for even people who didn't buy more items, uh, for some, many of them, uh, they substituted the choices they make. They meant to buy, uh, let's say, one kind of case for their phone, but they ended up buying another case because the uh, recommendation said that people who viewed this also viewed that. Um, and, and similarly, there have been studies by data scientists at Amazon, Netflix, YouTube, and I mentioned some of these numbers, like 70% of the time people spend on YouTube is driven by algorithmic recommendations. That's based on some internal study by data scientists at YouTube. 80% of the viewing hours on Netflix are attributed to recommendation algorithms. That's based on a study done by data scientists at Netflix. And all of these studies will have a control group and a treated group and will uh, address uh, what you just brought up, which is that maybe these exact choices would have been made in their absence. Yeah, whole whole industries are based on, on that difference, right? Um, our, by the way, if you just yeah. joined us, uh, Kartik Hosaniger, uh, who's a professor at the Wharton uh, School at the University of Pennsylvania, is uh, we're talking about his interesting new book, A Human's Guide to Machine Intelligence, How Algorithms Are Shaping Our Lives and How We Can Stay in Control. This might be a good uh, place to bring in, and I'm sure some people are wondering, wanting you to, uh, to talk about this. I'll ask you to do that now. Um, what happened in the 2016 election, what we think is probably going to happen, uh, you know, coming up in subsequent elections um, uh, algorithms which are uh, promoting uh, fake news stories around around right. elections and the effect that that might have. Yes, I think this is becoming a very uh, important issue. Uh, certainly in the 2016 elections, there was uh, a lot of talk about uh, fake news being circulated on Facebook. And there was one really interesting aspect to that. Uh, and that was that uh, Facebook had this section called trending news stories, where they would uh, share what, what stories are popular. And for a long period of time, trending news stories uh, were curated by human editors. 
And uh, many commentators had accused Facebook of having a left-leaning bias uh, and uh, were accusing Facebook's editors of choosing stories that were more left-leaning. And Facebook said, you know what, uh, we hear your criticism, um, and what we're going to do is replace these human editors with an algorithm to curate trending news stories. And an algorithm cannot be accused of having a, a, a left or a right bias. And they did do that, and so uh, for uh, several months, and in fact since then, Algorithms were been curating a lot of stories, certainly the trending news stories, which were more visible on Facebook. And it turns out that these algorithms, while they did not have a political bias, they were not able to detect fake news stories like human uh, editors were. And that's because, you know, the engineers who are designing these algorithms hadn't th thought at that point about fake news stories. And they were testing these systems for overall accuracy. You know, is it counting the you know, the viewership correctly, and then, you know, does it have a bias or not because they were explicitly trying to address that. But they hadn't tested for whether it can detect fake content or not. They rolled it out, and as a result, in 2016, the top 10 fake news stories were circulated and, and read a lot more on Facebook than the top 10 uh, true news stories. And so that was a huge problem in 2016 beyond fake news stories. Uh, another thing that uh, really came out was that uh, there was also an echo chamber on Facebook where people are uh, seeing more and more of stories that are consistent with their views uh, and also connected to people who, are, uh, who share their views. And as a result of that, most people did, couldn't even see the viewpoint on the other side, and it's uh, this kind of uh, um, echo chamber is also creating more polarization in politics. And this is certainly a, a big problem, and I, I think it remains a problem today, whether it's on YouTube or Facebook, and especially on WhatsApp. Uh, it's very hard to, uh, you know, for an individual to know whether a certain story is fake or not or false or not, and they have to actually uh, go out and, and uh, you know, independently confirm whether a story is true or not. And most people don't do that. They believe whatever comes in on, uh, you know, is shared and, and seems like a legitimate website, but mo most cases it isn't. And, uh, you know, Facebook over time, because of the criticism in 2016, has gotten better at detecting fake news stories. It's still not perfect, but their algorithms do a lot better today than before. But such stories are circulated uh, on many other platforms. And, you know, WhatsApp is owned by Facebook, and WhatsApp is more uh, secure and, and the information is encrypted. And, uh, you know, Facebook's ability to detect fake news stories on WhatsApp is much lower than on, uh, on, on Facebook itself. So it remains a big problem. So you, you've addressed this, at least in part. I wanted to follow up, though. Um, so is the remedy in the algorithm, tweaking the algorithm, is, is that the best remedy then to, uh, to prevent this or, or lessen the spread of fake news and the echo chamber? Yeah, the remedy for this problem, and I think for many problems, is actually not in any one uh, uh, action. I think there are many things firms our companies deploying uh, technology need to do. There are many things that individuals using technology need to do. There are things that regulators will need to do as well. And so I think if we talk about, you know, what companies need to do, I think they need to test their algorithms a lot better than they, or more holistically. They need to have a social science approach to algorithm uh, testing. Uh, and what I mean by that is that an engineer might look at the technical accuracy uh, and uh, a narrow set of engineering metrics when evaluating the algorithm. You know, a social scientist might think about uh, issues such as fairness, or issues such as, uh, you know, safety and, and privacy and lots of other such considerations. And so I think some of those considerations have to be brought into the design of these algorithms. But that alone will not suffice because I think at the end of the day, it's a cat and mouse game and, uh, you know, companies will build a better mouse trap, but other content will get through. Um, and so I think uh, you also need uh, users to become more savvy and more educated. And I think we cannot continue to be as passive with how we use technology. 
uh, I think all of us will need to become more active and engaged. Uh, and I think in this regard, specifically as far as fake news is concerned, Scandinavian c- countries are doing a great job of educating, you know, school children about fake news and about how to validate information you read and how to uh, view online information with a healthy amount of skepticism and confirm the information through additional sources. And I think they're doing a much better job, but I think this needs to go into, uh, you know, just like we've, we've been talking about digital literacy for the last 15 years, we need to talk about algorithm literacy now. Uh, for the next 15 years, uh, and those are going to be important. And I think regulators also need to make sure that they hold technology companies accountable, given their impact. It's no longer, you know, somebody in a garage building a technology that's used by a few thousand people. It's so fundamental to our personal and professional lives. So I think uh, there needs to be greater accountability of these firms as well. Let's take another break. When we come back, uh, more with Kartik Hosaniger. He is a professor at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania uh, and studies artificial intelligence and algorithms. He's out with an interesting new book, A Human's Guide to Machine Intelligence, How Algorithms Are Shaping Our Lives and How We Can Stay in Control. After the break, Professor, I'd like to talk about uh, very high-stakes use of algorithms. And an interesting example that you put in the book, um, in Florida, in, the, in their uh, penal system, uh, trying to get away from biases, they instead stumbled <laughs> onto more bias. Um, and uh, I want to talk about machine learning and maybe the limits of, of machine learning and what that uh, what that might mean for us humans. Uh, we'll have more with Kartika Seneger, A Human's Guide to Machine Intelligence, following this break. On the next Putumayo World Music Hour, we'll take you to concert halls, clubs, and festivals around the world to catch live music by some of our favorite international stars. From Zimbabwe's Oliver Mitukudzi to Mexico's Julieta Venegas. I'm Rosalie Howard. Join us for World Music Live, the next Putumayo World Music Hour. Join us Friday night at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Utah is home to breathtaking natural wonders and rigorous scientific research, and the issues affecting our natural world are important to the life of every Utahn. That's why we're answering the question, so what? Science Utah is your home for all things science. Our team of science reporters, most of them graduate students from USU's Ecology Center, are updating you on the latest in science news and providing commentary on pressing issues. Because scientific topic, from air quality to our national parks and even gene editing, matters to Utah. Join us as we explore the world of Science Utah, available at upr.org, the UPR app, and anywhere you get your podcasts. UPR is everywhere you are, with classical music programming, news, and information, statewide through 36 Signals, worldwide on the web at upr.org, and through the new UPR app, UPR is only a push of the button away. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We've reached our last segment with Kartik Hosaniger. He's a professor in the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. The book is A Human's Guide to Machine Intelligence. So, Professor Hosaniger, uh, maybe you could tell us briefly about this uh, case in uh, Florida. You, you cite a, uh, a study by the nonprofit uh, uh, outfit ProPublica in Florida, apparently in the courtrooms, to help determine recidivism risk in criminals. They set up an algorithm. Yes, so this was uh, based on uh, an investigation or a study done by, uh, as you said, uh, the nonprofit ProPublica. And it was specifically into the use of algorithms in courtrooms in Florida. And these algorithms computed various risk scores of defendants. Uh, One of those risk scores, uh, actually probably the most important risk score they computed, was uh, the recidivism risk, risk score, which was essentially the likelihood or risk that a defendant will reoffend. And this score was available um, to judges and parole officers to guide them in making bail decisions, sentencing decisions, parole decisions, and so on. And the idea uh, essentially was that, uh, that these decision makers could make more objective decisions um, because these algorithms would look at historical data and come up with objective scores on the likelihood that this defendant is going to reoffend or not. Uh, 
And it turns out that the investigation showed that these algorithms uh, actually had a race bias. Specifically, they were twice as likely to falsely predict future criminality in uh, black defendants than white defendants. And uh, similarly, they were twice as likely to uh, falsely predict that a white defendant is not going to commit an offense uh, than uh, with black defendants. In other words, they gave more of a benefit of doubt to the white defendant than the black, and they were often wrong about that. Um, and so these systems were being used by these decision makers and clearly influenced the choices they made. And the purpose of the system was to help them make objective decisions, but it turned out that these uh, algorithms had a bias. And the question is, where does this bias come from? And the bias comes from data because uh, we are moving towards uh, algorithms that are not heavily engineered or heavily programmed, where all the rules, you know, I talked about algorithms being a set of rules that, uh, or a set of steps that uh, the system follows. And those steps were previously engineered, meaning determined by a human being. And increasingly, we're asking these systems to learn from data. And we can talk next about machine learning and the trend there and so on. But I think when they're learning with data, the question is, what biases are embedded in the data itself? And uh, the system uh, might have picked up these biases from the data. And this example is certainly not isolated. Uh, you know, Amazon uh, recently tried to use algorithms to uh, screen job applicants and figure out which ones to invite for interviews. And uh, uh, Reuters news story revealed that, uh, that Amazon later found that their algorithm had a gender bias and then discontinued the use of that algorithm. And here again, an algorithm is trying to make really important decisions, um, you know, which influences people's livelihood, and that algorithm ended up having a gender bias. So when we're talking about algorithms in a courtroom that is influencing whether somebody is going to be in jail for five years or 20 years, or whether a person gets a job or not, the stakes are super high. And we've seen examples of algorithm failures in even these high-stakes settings. Yeah, that's it's very concerning. I do want to talk about machine learning. Um, I wonder what the what where we're going. Are, are we heading toward HAL? Um, <laughs> machines have learned how to um, beat chess champions. The latest is uh, the machine defeated a Go champion, a, a more complex game. Uh, right. Where are we heading with machine learning? Yeah, so machine learning is an, is an interesting idea. Um, for your listeners who have heard the term but aren't familiar with what that involves, it's essentially the idea of uh, learning through data. Um, and, and if we actually step back uh, and ask what is artificial intelligence, artificial intelligence is the idea that we can get machines to do the kinds of things it takes human intelligence to do. For example, understand language, uh, to be able to navigate the physical world, which would include recognizing objects and people and, and picking up objects and so on, learning, reasoning, all these things are part of artificial intelligence. Now, the old way of building artificial intelligence was that you would write a crazy number of rules in order to automate intelligence. So, for example, if I wanted to build a system to diagnose diseases, I would interview lots of doctors and find out how do you diagnose diseases, and they give me rules, rules like, you know, if the person has a fever and chills and it's been uh, there for over a week, then I rule out maybe, uh, you know, viral causes of it and start considering antibiotic because it might be a bacterial cause, things like that. We, we ought code all those rules. But it turns out when you code those rules, those systems are somewhat intelligent but aren't close to human intelligence. And where we've gone over the last 10 years is to say, let's not ask experts to give us the rules they use to make decisions, because these rules are sometimes not even known to those experts. They're making decisions using approaches that they themselves don't recognize. And so instead of asking them the rules, let's observe them in action and let's collect that data and have the system learn the patterns in the data. So we would instead have a million patients' uh, data as a training data set. And we would look at, you know, what symptoms did they walk into a hospital with? What were the various tests done? What were the clinical markers? And what was the final diagnosis? And then we say, hey, let's learn from that. 
you want to teach a system to speak or uh, to recognize people's faces, let's not code rules. Let's give it a lot of nice data and let's learn from that. And that's the, what is driving the progress in machine learning today, that we have a lot of data and we have the processing power to process that data. And to coming back to your question, where is that taking us? Certainly as data has become more and more available, these systems are getting much better and they can beat humans at many tasks. Even uh, tasks like image recognition, people find surprising that actually machines are now able to recognize images better than humans. Um, and if you show photographs to people and photographs to uh, you know, a state-of-the-art machine learning algorithm, the algorithm often beats humans. It certainly beats humans at chess. Go is one you brought up. It's a more, far more complex game than chess. People thought it would be a while before machine learning can beat humans at Go. It's already done that. You know, we're talking about driverless cars. We're talking about systems that can talk to us. Um, so, yes, these systems are becoming very intelligent. But what we have today is what I'll call artificial narrow intelligence, uh, also known as VKI. This is the idea that artificial intelligence is good at one task, perhaps even better than humans at that task, but that's all it can do. Siri can talk to us, but Siri cannot, uh, let's say, drive a car. Or you have a driverless uh, uh, AI that can drive a car, but it cannot recognize people's faces. It cannot uh, you know, converse with them. Or you have a system that can play chess, but it cannot do other things. So that's artificial narrow intelligence. Where this is going, and we don't know if we'll get there, but computer scientists are optimistic, and many believe it can be done in the next 100 years, but we don't know for sure. But where we're going is strong AI, which is a system that's as intelligent as humans, not at one narrow task, but at everything. In other words, general AI, artificial general intelligence. Now, if we get there, you know, it's a different conversation because the system is as intelligent uh, as us. It has access to more data. It can process data faster than us. And therefore, uh, you know, it's going to easily beat us and get ahead of us, not at one task, but at everything. And obviously, the, you know, it's game over at that point. Uh, but as of now, we're talking about artificial narrow intelligence, um, which itself has huge implications because at individual tasks, these systems can beat us at many of these tasks. We just have about uh, three minutes left. <clears throat> I want to ask you, uh, you know, someone who studies this and obviously uses artificial intelligence, uh, I do, we all do, um, and in, in some ways it's we don't have a choice. Um, how comfortable are you with where we are and where we're going in the near near future? Anything that especially worry you about uh, algorithms and in artificial intelligence? Well, so first of all, you know, even though we've talked about the challenges with algorithms and AI, I mostly believe that you know these systems are a huge positive and will be a net positive. Um, and, uh, you know, there are challenges with their use, and we've talked about some immediate challenges, such as, uh, you know, biased algorithms for recruiting or in courtrooms, um, or, you know, maybe uh, there are, of course, also going to be long-term challenges in terms of employment uh, of people as these uh, systems become more intelligent. Um, so there are challenges. I think uh, what is happening is that we are underestimating the rate at which these systems are improving. And so we need to get ready super fast. And when I say we need to get ready super fast, that's us as individuals, that's regulators, need to prepare society for it. Um, and so I don't think we are moving as fast as is needed to prepare for that day. I think people need to be reskilled, uh, assuming that we'll be in an AI world very soon. And so we need to think about what skills are useful when systems are that intelligent. We need to think about what checks and balances need to be in place and how companies are held accountable. So all of these things are needed in order for us to live and thrive in an AI world, which I don't think is that far away. So we're not moving fast enough is my main concern. Uh, just by the way, just a couple of minutes left. Um, area of employment is always a concern. Uh, we've seen big disruptions in the worldwide global economy. Um, is that going to accelerate, and will that affect employment? Yes. Uh, so we've seen disruptions uh, 
in employment. I mean, we look at the politics in the U.S., um, and a lot of people have pointed out that, you know, some of the employment challenges that have happened in the last few years have been, um, you know, certainly because of globalization, but also in big ways because of automation. And that automation process is only getting started. And, you know, so far we were talking about factory automation, but now with AI we're talking about automation of of many things. You know, we're talking about driverless vehicles. You know, there are so many people uh, in the U.S. that are uh, getting their employment uh, through driving, whether it's uh, driving trucks or driving uh, buses and taxis uh, or Ubers and, and the like. And so that profession is going to be affected with driverless cars. Um, we're talking about use of AI in diagnosis. We're talking about use of AI for a lot of white-collar jobs as well. And so we have to think about not just uh, you know, how does it impact uh, factory jobs, but jobs everywhere. And so all of those are really critical, and we need to ask what skills are going to be more relevant. I think where uh, I see it going is that AI is not necessarily only going to displace, but it's also going to augment and allow people to be more efficient. And so I think where it will have value is some of the routine jobs we do, the chores we do, even at the workplace, the more routine and less interesting and less creative jobs could be taken over by AI, allowing us to focus on the more challenging and more creative jobs. And so I think creativity uh, is going to become more important. I think the two skills that will be more important in an AI world, one of them is going to be the computer engineers and data scientists who are going to create AI. And the second is going to be creative jobs that are going to be the last to be affected by AI. So I think anything you do that involves creativity and is less, you know, you know, highly repeatable, those are the kinds of tasks uh, with, that will be relevant. And I think people need to reskill around that and, and governments need to think about skilling around that as well. We've reached the end of our time. The book is uh, A Human's Guide to Machine Intelligence. Subtitle is How Algorithms Are Shaping Our Lives and How We Can Stay in Control. The author is Kartik Hosaniger. He is John C. Howard Professor of Technology and Digital Business and a Professor of Marketing at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. Professor Hosaniger, it's been a, a pleasure. Thank you so much. Tom, thank you for having me. It's been a great pleasure speaking with you. And thank you for listening to Access Utah. Hey, Lael, what's the deal with appetizers? You know, Jen, appetizers are those tasty little bites that whet your appetite for the main meal. Ah, so it's like our UPR segment, Bread and Butter. Tasty little radio bites about cooking, eating, and all the ingredients in between. We should invite the listeners to brunch. Good idea. Join us every Sunday at 11 a.m. for Bread and Butter, your locally sourced appetizer to the splendid table. Now there's a satisfying meal and all on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard at upr.org. Utah Public Radio is broadcasting engaging and impactful stories of Utah 24 hours, 7 days a week on the air. But we have a lot more to say and so much more for you to hear. The UPR social media team is bringing you Utah's most important stories right to your feed. Stay up to date and join the discussion by connecting with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Pinterest. Don't forget to use the hashtag IamUPR. Why wait? Pick up your mobile device now and get the most out of Utah Public Radio. And just as always, stay tuned for more on the air from UPR.